My blood is 100% Scandinavian. Yeah. It's like through and through. Yeah. My people are used to it just being night. Like, all the time. All the time. Yeah. My dad said that he got like a DNA. He and my mom went to go get a DNA test done and that, yeah, we're like, what is it? I can't remember what he said. I'm going to mess up the numbers, but it's like something like 40% Scottish, 20% English, and the rest is Scandinavian. So I'm with you there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I don't know. I am not one of those people that understands the appeal behind those DNA tests. Mm -hmm. Just because it's like, I, especially if you're Mormon, right? You kind of know. Because it's like, you're doing family history, right? Like, somebody you know is probably doing your family history. And so, like, yeah, I know I'm Scandinavian, not because I took a DNA test, but because straight up, my mom went back, like, 500 years. Yeah. Yeah, I would be so interested to know anyway. I'd be really curious. But you're right. It's kind of already done for me. And not only that, but even if it wasn't done, I would be able to look at my skin and how easily it burns and just be like, you know, I think I I have an idea. Yeah, there's definitely some Irish blood in there. (laughs) My hair may not be red, but my skin burns like I have red hair. So (laughs) there's no segue. There is no segue. segue. Um, Let's just do the episode. Yeah. planned we do have these little meetings where we kind of plan the next few episodes in advance and i mentioned the idea to do an episode about poetry because poetry is one of my favorite things to read and to write and to just immerse myself in but we kind of been pushing it back because we had some guest speakers and we've um, had you know better topics but most of all because i wasn't ready because i don't think at the moment i realized how big of a commitment this would have been (laughs) Yeah, no, it's I I totally get it because I was like, oh no, it's fine. Like you just gotta sit down and do it. It's totally fine. It'll be like an episode. I don't think we'll need more than one episode. And then I actually thought about it one night at work, and I was like, how are oh, we going? Goodness, yeah. like why did I say that? That was such a stupid thing to say. But we um I we have it to put together, and um we're gonna. I mean, I assume we're probably gonna do two short episodes about it just because there is a lot to cover if we want to cover it all which i obviously we're not going to do but i'd really like it to be um expansive you know i want to start from the beginning and work through movements and authors and time periods and historical context and stuff like that and that takes some time it does yeah yeah so this will be a two-parter part one we're going to be talking about early poetry Uh, We're going to be talking about some epics, since that is some of the earliest poetry, and we'll move up probably to mm, 18th, 19th century. Yeah, that seems seems good. Seems about right. And then we'll cover modern poetry in part two. Yes. Um, Okay, let's uh, dive right in. Um, First of all, I want to credit poet seers and poetry 
Foundation. Um, those are two websites that I used a lot. They have a lot of information and helped me a lot in organizing this little sheet that I have in front of me, which is about seven pages, I think. <laughs> um, yeah. And I think it's important to try to define poetry at first because I think when most people think about poetry, they think of, you know, short stanzas and confusing language and, you know, boring, maybe. If you don't already like poetry, that might be what you think of. And that was my first impression, too, and we'll get to that in a little bit. It's important to note that poetry can be considered the opposite of prose. So prose is a logical explanation with a linear narrative, and it's most books that you have read. Um, and that I read too. And poetry being the opposite is going to be not super logical, um, symbolic, a little deep, um, you know, kind of multiple, a little ambiguous. There are multiple interpretations. And that's why a lot of people don't like poetry, but it's why I love poetry. Because you can be reading something from the 17th, 16th, uh, maybe not way back then, but like you can be reading from like the 17th or 18th century, which you wouldn't think you had a ton in common with someone back back then. But um, the writing is so intentionally ambiguous that you're able to pull your own meaning from it instead of, you know, a straight up story about, you know, the hardships of the chimney sweeps in the romantic period or something, which you're like, I don't really know about that. But but when you have Blake who put it in a poem, you know, it's you start to see that he's trying to reach more themes than just, you know, children chimney sweeps in London, you know, in the 18th century. So poetry has aesthetic and rhythmic qualities, sound, sound symbolism, um, meter and phono phonesthetics, phonesthetics being the kind of imagery you get when you see certain words. The imagery is really important to poetry. And uh, Aristotle, actually one of the earliest definitions of poetry in his book Poetics, defined poetry as speech used in rhetoric, drama, song, and comedy. And he separated poetry into three sections called the epic, the comic, and the tragic. And as you and I both know, Audrey, we know there is so much more to that. Um, the oh, definition yeah. did start to focus on verse form and rhyming, but it's... <sighs> It's really hard to have a straight definition of poetry because it really, there are so many different types that it's hard to have one overarching definition, you know? Yeah. Well, and the reason why we're splitting this episode up into two parts is because there is a very significant transition from the basically pre-industrial age to the post-industrial mm -hmm. age. You see a huge transition, not just in again, industry, but in art. Oh, yeah. And uh, kind of to use a visual representation. If you look at David, the sculpture by Michelangelo, the whole appeal of it to a lot of people is that it is supposed to be very accurate, like anatomically correct. And it's supposed to be kind of the ideal man. Mm -hmm. You know, he's got this perfect form. He's muscular. He's free of blemishes. Um, and if you look at modern art and modern sculptures, you don't really see that because you are no longer trying to tell people an accurate representation of something. You are trying to convey a feeling. Mm -hmm. And so poetry, even though it has kind of always been um, more about imagery and symbolism in the early days it did focus a little bit more on 
like concrete imagery mm-hmm. whereas modern poetry you you still have that metaphorical aspect to it but there's a little bit more freedom in like how abstract you can get mm-hmm. right yeah i i agree i um i in fact, my next the next point I kind of want to talk about. I have some terms here that I'm not going to read off because I don't want this to feel like school or anything. Um, but I um, there was a moment when I realized I hated poetry, and then a little bit later, a moment when I realized I loved poetry, and it actually had to do with being introduced to modern poetry. Um, so I do have these questions that I also want you to answer, Audrey. Um, what was the moment you hated poetry, and? Uh, my answer for that is I remember in high school, I can't remember whose class it was. It was one of my English teachers, one of my less favorite English teachers, because I had some excellent ones, you know, that just really hit the nail on the head. That really got me thinking. But this was one of the ones that I just, I, um, I wanted to fall asleep every day in class. And she had us tear apart Ode to a Grecian Urn by John Keats, which is already an overused poem to begin with. It is great, sure, but man, I'm so sick of that. Cause we studied that in college this last semester and I could not, I'm so sorry. I just could not stand reading it just cause I was so sick of it, but it really is a wonderful poem, but she had us tear, tear it apart. Look at every single word, find some secret deep meaning in every word. And we spent like two class periods doing this. And I realized at the end of that little lesson that that I hated reading poetry because if it wasn't, if, if I had to work this hard to get meaning out of it, then what was like, what was the point? Like, I, th- I thought poetry was supposed to be enjoyable and make you feel like, you know, inspired and artistic and all this stuff. And this just made me want to tear my hair out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, Grecian Urn definitely sucked. Uh, I, I have to agree with that because I had to do the same thing in high school. Had to study Ode to a Grecian Urn. And honestly, I have tried so hard to shove that poem just out of my mind Mm -hmm. just completely out of it because i'm like i got nothing out of it my english teacher also had us do and it was pretty standard fare you know the red wheelbarrow this is just to say the poem about plums (laughs) and yeah okay i i recognize that one and and who wrote that because i studied that one at byu and i i also didn't like it because we tore it apart again And it's fine to tear poems apart and like try to find your meaning, but I like going at my own pace. And when I'm with a classroom of people who are like every, like it's just hard to move forward when everyone has their own interpretation. It's hard to study poetry in groups, I think. It's fun to talk about it, but for me, it's just more of a personal thing, you know? Yeah. It was by William Carlos Williams. And actually, he also wrote The Red Wheelbarrow. So I don't think it's a coincidence Mm -hmm. that I dislike both, but. Uh, I do have to say, there is actually a meme going around Twitter right now that I really freaking love, because for some reason, people have looked at this poem, which I'm going to read through really quick in case our listeners are not entirely sure. The title of the poem is This Is Just To Say. I have eaten the plums that were in the icebox, and which you were probably saving for breakfast. Forgive me. They were delicious, so sweet, and so cold. (laughs) And that's it. That's the poem. The man has this poem actually engraved on his grave, because it is his most famous poem. And And one has to wonder how. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Jeez. So I I get this um, 
I don't know, like satisfaction out of the fact that people have been memeing it on Twitter lately, now that we have 280 characters to work with rather than the 140 before, Mm -hmm. there's a little bit more, um, you know, liberty to be creative with this. So people have been (laughs) taking this theme and they've been putting them in the format of an extremely recognizable modern song. And so I'm going to go ahead and read a couple of these because they're just so good. Hey now, here in Icebox, get your plums on. (laughs) So sweet. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Which, if if you don't already have All Star stuck in your head because of that beat, it is now. I like those lyrics a little better than the original, actually. Yeah. So sweet. I like this one. Hey, I just met you. And this is crazy. But the plums in the icebox, I ate them, maybe. <laughs> I know, they're so grown-worthy, but at the same time, uh, they're I'm just so, like... It's just like, it, the fact that Twitter's taking really, really bad songs and mixing it with so-called, like, high poetry is really, really yeah. satisfying. One more? Yes. Now, this is a story just to say that I ate the plums in the icebox today. <laughs> and I'd like to take a minute just sit right there. I'm sorry that the plums weren't really there to share. <laughs> oh, that's pretty good. Oh, I'll love the internet forever and never just for those kinds of things. <laughs> yeah. And actually, I, I can't find it. But while I was browsing Twitter the other day, I saw somebody mash up, uh, this is just to say, and the red wheelbarrow together. Oh, yeah. And I just loved it because I was like, it is my two most hated poems in the same place, and it makes no sense, and I am sure that William Carlos Williams would absolutely hate it, and that is why I love it. Yep. (laughs) Eat your heart out, William Carlos, whatever. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So... Poetry can be annoying, um, especially when your teacher is forcing you to tear apart a four-line poem about eating plums and not really being sorry about it. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> obviously, I mean, not obviously, because you can't really say obviously, but to me, like, that's just a nice, sweet, short poem about eating some plums and getting some pleasure from it. But I mean, she made us just like, I mean, philosophically, what does it mean? And all this stuff. And I was like, no, it's just plums. Like, and maybe it wasn't. Maybe he did have something else in mind. But I didn't want to. I didn't want to think it was about anything else other than plums. And she made us kind of, and it was good practice, I suppose. But she made us kind of find a deeper meaning, and it was really irritating. Anyway, um, my next question is: When did that hate turn to love? For me, I. Maybe in my first year of BYU, I was exposed to E.E. Cummings, Walt Whitman, and Charles Bukowski, all of which we won't be talking about in this episode because they are definitely much later in the long history that is poetry. But they introduced me to a more free form of poetry, which I didn't really think existed, uh, let alone think I I could do it, you know? But... Mm -hmm. You know, E.E. Cummings' lack of punctuation and Whitman's weird, almost prose-like poetry, which we'll get to later. And Bukowski was kind of nasty, but also just so intriguing to read about. I mean, he's pretty misogynistic, and so I don't know why Mm -hmm. I enjoyed it so much, but I really did. Like, he was just a gross old man that was just 
He let me just write exactly what I'm feeling. And it was really refreshing. And so I kind of turned when, when I was exposed to those poems because, or those poets, because I thought, oh, this is something I can do. I don't have to write a massive epic or I don't have to rhyme even if I don't want to. And, uh, I was also in a, um, class, a one credit class that required you to go to three readings that took place at BYU of different authors. And, um, you were required to buy one of those authors books and, um, go have them sign it. And I didn't really give it much thought, but I grabbed the shortest one I could find. Uh, her name's Mary Zibist. It's a weird name. S-Z-Y-B-I-S-T. And I bought her poetry book called Incarnadine. And I went to this reading and I was just floored because she she was just the quintessential poet. Like she was up there and she paused four seconds before she read and and then just like this overflow of emotion about these really simplistic, you know, themes, but these just beautifully crafted poems. And I went and had her sign this and I was just really excited because I was like, I was going to have you sign this for an assignment, but I mean, I actually want you to sign it now because I really, really love you. And she says, for Carmen, fellow poet, very warmly, Mary Jeebist. And it just made my little heart sore because she called me a poet. That's when I started liking poetry is when I realized that it didn't have to be, it didn't have to be anything that I didn't want it to be, honestly. Yeah. And for me, it was very, very similar. And to be honest, I actually still kind of struggle with poetry a little bit. Mm -hmm. Uh, My husband really actually enjoys poetry quite a bit. And so... I'd say once every three or four years or so, I get him a poetry book Mm -hmm. for like his birthday or for Christmas or something. And so we have all of these collections of like, so we actually do have the Bukowski collection, Love is a Dog from Hell. And (laughs) that was my first uh, exposure to Bukowski. And I was like, oh, he nasty. Yeah, I remember you talking to me about it, about getting it for Nick. And you're like, I'm not sure... And I was just like, well, you just have to kind of just, you just kind of have to shove your morals down and just kind of go for it, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I got it because it has one of his favorite poems, which is actually, surprisingly, Bukowski does have some poems that are not completely nasty and misogynistic. Which one is it? And uh, Alone with Everybody. Uh Uh-huh. So it's a good one. And it, it, I mean, you can kind of glean from the title what it's about. Anyway, I, so I've tried to sit down and just like read just a couple of poems at a time. And the problem is some of the more structured stuff does make me fall asleep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's understandable. Because some of the more structured stuff is some of the older stuff, like, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is, it is hard to get through. It's very dense. But like, there was actually a very distinct shift in my attitude. Actually, just like, I don't remember how long ago it's been now. It's been maybe three or so years. I was listening to a podcast called Alice Isn't Dead. It's by one of the guys that works on the podcast, Welcome to Night Vale. Mm. And it is supposed to be kind of a creepy narrative story about a woman who picks up a trucking job so she can basically drive around the country looking for her wife. And most of the episodes are very much just like, you know, this is what happened in this city, this is what happened in this city. And the creator has said that he was interested in doing this podcast because of some of the tours that they did, and they would go see some really weird things around the country. Mm-hmm. Well, there's this one episode. It is the fourth episode of part one, where the character goes to a 
factory next to the ocean. And as she's talking about this drop-off that she's making, she's interweaving some memories of her and her wife uh, into this narrative. Mm. And every time she goes back to what's happening with the drop-off, it actually is very metaphorical. It's very poetic. The man that is there helping her actually, like, ages before her eyes. Mm -hmm. And she finds out that she was delivering his coffin. And even though he's, like, a young teenager when she gets there, by the time he's done needing her help, like, he's ready to die. <laughs> and it's extremely symbolic and it's extremely moving because he just takes everything in stride. And so even though it's narrative, the way that it's structured is very poetic. Yeah. The the movement of life intermingled with these like very specific memories that she has of like her most loved one. Mm -hmm. Not all poetry will be in the form that you expect it to be. Prose poetry is um, poetry written in prose form, but it maintains those poetic qualities. So like Audrey said, um, this was, I mean, it, it was, it was a story. It was telling a story, but it maintained a lot of like poetic qualities, like rich imagery and symbolism and really, you know, kind of ambiguous beauty and stuff like that. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it's about, I don't know, half hour long. I would recommend that anybody listening to this, just go listen to that one episode again, part one, episode four. Mm -hmm. You don't really need much context beyond what I've already said. Yeah, that she's looking uh, for her wife. Sounds yeah. interesting. Yeah, and I really liked Night Vale, so I think I'd like this one too. It's it grabs you, you know. Yeah, yeah, and so that's kind of the moment for me when I realized, like, oh, you don't have to have that form very much, like you realized, like mm -hmm. you don't have to have that structured form in order for it to be good, mm -hmm. because my English teacher had kind of driven into my head that you need that form, you need rhythm, you need rhyming yeah. in order for it to be a, a good poem, right. that any schmuck can just sit down in front of a notebook and write down what they're feeling. Mm -hmm. It takes a true poet to put it into structure. Yeah. And I think that is just such BS. It is. It is. It squashes your inner poetic genius, which is a term I'll get to later. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I just, because of that, my I don't know, my cognitive bias was actually to look at that freeform stuff and be like, oh, that's not real poetry. Mm -hmm. I just don't like poetry. So you and wouldn't even get a chance. Yeah, yeah. And I was almost moved to tears by this like one episode of this podcast. And I was like, oh, I get it. Yeah. I'm supposed to feel like this when I listen to poetry. Yep. Yep. It doesn't matter if it's structured or not. It's what makes me feel this way mm -hmm. that matters. Yeah. And um, honestly, the one I, I I can read some of that structured stuff. The one in the moment that I was discovering, I really liked the freeform modern stuff. The one structured old one that stood out was Paradise Lost by Milton. And I don't think I really had an option in this case because I had to take a great authors course at BYU and it was either Shakespeare, <laughs> Chaucer or Milton. And I hate the first two, like I hate them. So the one, the one that did stand out to me was Milton because I took an entire class on it. And I, I feel like I grew to new, like know Milton and these characters in Paradise Lost, which is this incredible epic about the story of 
the Garden of Eden and creation. Um, and we'll get to that in a little bit, but um, epics are important to bring up because they are some of the earliest forms of poetry. And with that, we'll kind of jump into poetry history. So some of the earliest forms of poetry were found in Africa in the 25th century BC. That was a long, long time ago. In case you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I honestly, many, many moons, yeah, many moons. I kind of had like a, a moment of, I, I, I kind of confronted my own mortality several times putting this thing together because I'm a, I'm a poet, and learning that there have been poets in this world since the 25th century BC, it just kind of blows my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, so 25th century BC, they were in the form of pyramid texts and they would be unillustrated Egyptian writing on, um, pyramids, mostly for pharaohs at first and their sarcophagi, but then it kind of started appearing on other officials uh, on, for queens and for, you know, other important officers in Egyptian politics. So that was the first form of what you could call poetry. And it was in Egyptian, obviously. So it's, um, it's kind of hard when you translate poetry, um, not not just from like, you know, French to English or German to English, but I mean, especially for a, a language that doesn't use the same alphabet and doesn't have the same structure of sentences, it's really hard to, tr- to translate it and have it kind of be the same, you know, have it get across the same message. I found a few haikus that were translated from Japanese to English and they didn't even have the proper syllables, you know. And they mm-hmm. are, they were also just kind of a little weird and vague, but in Japanese, I'm certain that they were gorgeous, you know? Um, right. Yeah. So, uh, that was the first form of poetry. And, uh, and then we kind of moved on to ancient epics. And, um, these, what's important to note with these is that most of them were spread from oral tradition and that is spoken out loud. And, because they they were written down they were they were stories you know and and that kind of makes it hard to pin down exactly what they were when they were told because there was never any official written version you know right and this is where we get into why people spoke things in poetic verse to begin with because we're going to at least very briefly touch on for example Iliad and the Odyssey mm-hmm. And that is a poem that wasn't written down until, what, centuries after it was first told? And we don't even know who the original author is. Like, we say it's Homer, but, like, we don't Mm -mm. even actually know for sure if he was the one that that created. No. And the reason why people spoke things in poetic verse is the answer is actually surprisingly simple, and it's just because it makes things easier to remember. Right. Like, it's easier to you remember know? It's easier to remember a song than a whole poem. You know, it's easy It's easy to memorize your favorite song, but if you were just look at that and have the, the task to memorize it, that's, a, for some reason, just so much harder. And Yeah. Yeah. So we have to actually assume that the translations of a lot of these epic poems that we're going to talk about are actually just not even remotely similar to Mm -hmm. their original versions, and it's because they were passed on orally. And while the poetic structure does help people remember what's going on, it was more to remember, like, oh, this is the idea of what's going on here, and this is the idea of what's Uh going on here. And so you get details that are kind of lost um, as they, they pass on. It is important to note that... A lot of poetry was used not just for 
fictional stories, but for histories as well. If you were to look at some tribes in Africa and South America today, it's really interesting to note that they respect their elders more than a lot of first world countries do, because their elders are the ones that hold all of the wisdom and all of the mm. memories. And because they don't have history books like we do, you have to respect them for like, hey, since they remember this and, you know, there's the idea those who forget history are doomed to repeat it, um, they, they take that very seriously. And then not only that, but they actually have better memories than we do. Yeah. And it's something that a lot of people will kind of joke about, especially in the age of the smartphone, where it's like, well... You know, everybody's attention span is like five seconds now. But, it, you know, yeah. and I, I mean, it's hard to disagree with, yes, my memory is shorter than it probably should be. But it's also because, like, if I can write something down, why would why you have to remember? I? Exactly. Right. Why do I have yeah. to remember, like, math equations, you know, when I have a calculator? Why do I have to try to, yeah, it, it, there's really no need for it anymore, but it doesn't mean it's not important. Right, yeah. So it's not better or worse. Like, I, I wouldn't say that mm -hmm. either system is better or worse. They're just different. But it is important to kind of know that history of because writing things down was very, very difficult for a very long time because you either had to carve it in stone or use very precious paper, mm -hmm. which wasn't going to last. Memorizing things just happened to be a better choice. Yep. Um, so, so yeah, that's why, that's why it was easier to tell stories in the form of poems, um, and ancient epics, which like Audrey said, could if either been historical stories or just, you know, stories of heroes. Um, they also come from folk songs, like in, um, Xijing, uh, which means classic of poetry. It's a book of poems from China from the 11th to 7th century BC. And they were originally Chinese folk songs that were kind of converted into these epics. Um, and yeah, they were originally lyrics. And um, yeah, so they, they can come from folk stories, historical stories, heroic kind of godlike stories. Um, that's kind of the, the, that's kind of what epics like to focus on. And the earliest epic we have here is the epic of Gilgamesh which was 18th century BC yeah the earliest western the earliest example of western Asian epic poetry and I have not read that <laughs> I haven't read a lot of these <laughs> epics I it, yeah. they're, uh, they're so old and the language has got to be I mean we also have Beowulf on here which is a little bit later but that alone like it being a little bit closer to our time but it, it's it's an old English and it is so difficult to get through. And like I said, the translations yeah. don't quite capture what the original language would have tried to convey, you know, because translations right. get muddy and it makes things less like it doesn't have that flow that they had before, you know, and some words don't have a direct translation. So they have to translate it into, you know, some dopey sounding stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Beowulf was one of those uh, poems stories, I guess, that I did have to read in high school English. And thankfully, my English teacher was very good at helping us understand what was going on. Mm -hmm. He may have been a little bit of a pain in the butt when it came to the shorter poems, but when it came to the epics, he was very, very helpful. Uh, helpful enough, actually, that I even bought a copy of Beowulf for myself on one of my weird just I want to buy books wow. sprees. For you. <laughs> 
Now, that being said, I think I've only opened it up once in the last decade, Mm -hmm. which uh, I guess that's not too bad, but still. But you have it, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I look at it, I'm like, okay, all right. And I can remember, like, there's the evil monster Grendel and even more terrifying Grendel's mom. Yeah. (laughs) And I really kind of like the moral of the story, which is... If you're going to kill someone, make sure that their mother is out of the way oh, because yes. the wrath of a mother is greater than anything. Yeah. <laughs> and you will face Yeah, and see there's an, there's an example honestly, it's it it still applies. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's it's kind of obvious that it applies because like a mother's love is like one of the oldest you know things in the world. Um, but yeah, I should give Beowulf another shot. It's just that the, the old English is so strange to me. And I, I kind of, when I try to read it out loud, which helps me with difficult poetry, I kind of like laugh out loud. You know, it's just, yeah. it's hard. I don't know. It's hard to take seriously, even though I know it's a really important piece of literature. Um, yeah. We also have um, Vedas, which is the oldest scripture of Hinduism and the oldest text of Sanskrit. And that is actually authorless, which you will actually find a lot of these epics are authorless. Or like we said, Iliad the Odyssey, we're not entirely sure it was Homer. I mean, it's kind of widely accepted that it is Homer. But how how the hell do we know that? You know, like right. there is no there is just no it's just it's hard because it's just so old. Epic of Sundiata is one famous example of the griot tradition, which is just another word for the oral tradition. Um, no formal version because these are all spoken. And most of them were written down uh, several, several years after they've been told a billion times. It's like a game of telephone, too. I mean, if you wanted to... If you wanted to learn this epic of Sundiata from someone, you'd listen to it a billion times from them. And then, for one... Mm-hmm. for First of all, um, all the times they tell it are going to be probably a little bit different. And then you're going to tell it to someone and it's going to be slightly different and so on and so on and so on. So it's kind of heartbreaking to me that we don't know exactly what it sounded like, you know, in its prime. Yeah. And it kind of goes back to what you said about, like, a lot of these stories have some sort of, like, factual historical background to them. Because when it comes down to it... A lot of legends are based in fact of some sort. If you want to hear a more in-depth discussion of that, uh, I talk about it a mm-hmm. little bit in our King Arthur episode. But uh, because it changes over the years, that's mm-hmm. where embellishments are added. And what is most important, and I have to keep on telling myself when I think the same thing because my heart breaks as well, is what's more important is the lesson behind it rather than Mm -hmm. the details exactly it's like it's the moral you know which won't leave the the re it won't disappear through the retellings um hopefully but yeah if it's if you have Mm -hmm. if you hit certain points and you remember characters and you remember what those characters are like you'll eventually you'll 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 reach the same end yeah to wrap up the epic poems we're going to talk about i want to talk about paradise lost which is my favorite epic and like i said i took that milton class at byu and we studied um paradise lost and a few others that i can't remember and something he also wrote called paradise regained which not not as many people are aware of um it's about samson and delilah and it was a really really interesting read as well not quite as long as paradise lost but um paradise lost is actually something that i've put in our book club 
um, kind of, you know, list for us to pick from. So Audrey has been invited to that book club. And so she will definitely eventually be reading it. And I think when I, when I mentioned when I was having a meeting, it's, it's my boyfriend, Michael, and a few of our friends when we were sitting around and deciding what books we wanted to put in. I mentioned Paradise Lost and I think it kind of scared some of them. Not scared, just kind of like, ugh. It's that girl. It's you intimidating. Know? It is intimidating. Well, it is. Because I have a copy of it, and it's a really nice-looking copy. It's one of those where, like, I looked at it when I had the chance to grab it, and I was like, that's going to look so good on my oh, bookshelf. Yeah. It does, and, too. you know, I have, yeah, I have that problem because I have a lot of books that I do actually read, but most of them are in my bedroom. Right, The books right. that I don't read and that I have because they look pretty are out of uh-huh. my living room. <laughs> I'm actually, I have my books alphabetized, and I'm kind of burning through them. I'm starting at the beginning and then, like, read it, read it. Nope, not read it, so I have to pick that one out and read it first. I have to I have to get through the books I haven't read because I'm running out of room. And if I don't like them, I want to get rid of them, you know? Yeah. Anyway, um, Paradise Lost People. It's uh it's it's difficult, I'm not gonna lie, but it is I don't know, if you're gonna read something old, you should start with this. Don't don't read Shakespeare, don't read Beowulf, don't uh, just don't read those. Read Paradise Lost. It's beautiful. So bouncing back, Paradise Lost was written in the 17th century. We're going to bounce back a little bit to the 14th century, and we're going to talk a little bit more about kind of short form poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, so the 14th century brings Chaucer, which um, is the author of the Canterbury Tales. And if you've actually seen a, a Knight's Tale, Michael told me this, the guy that walks on, I don't actually know what his name is, but the really, really funny one, the one that walks on naked and introduces von Lichtenstein, it's actually alluded that he is Chaucer. Um, Really? uh I I never picked up on that. And that is so funny to me because it totally fits because he is very poetic, you know? And um, anyway, Canterbury Tales is an example of narrative poetry, which is just exactly how it sounds. It tells a story. And it's a collection of stories that are told in the form of pilgrims having a storytelling contest. And in that sense, it's really fun because you kind of get a change of um, scenery and pace every now and then, you know, different characters and different stories. So it's a little easier to focus on. I myself, I don't like it. I I don't, I, it, I just really don't like old poetry. And it, that was a long time ago. That was like five years ago, Carmen. So I should probably give it another chance at this point. But there are so many other things I'd like to focus on, you know. <laughs> Sure. Um, I mean, ultimately, you do what makes you happy, right? Right, right. (laughs) Uh, But as an English major, I feel like obligated to at least understand at a very fundamental level why these poems are important. And this one is actually important because it is uh, credited as the first poem to demonstrate the poetic capacity of the English language. And, you know, it does. It does demonstrate it very well. It is beautifully written. Um, It is old, though. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and as such, there's going to be a lot of that language that, like, doesn't make sense to our modern mm-hmm. minds because we're just not used to it. Mm-hmm. And so the problem that I tend to have with older poetry is simply that it takes so much energy. And don't get me wrong, there are a lot of people who enjoy putting their energy into that. Oh, yeah. And to that I say, I appreciate everything that you are doing. Absolutely. Genuinely, from the bottom of my heart, I really appreciate what you are doing because you are making it so much easier for me to not to understand. <laughs> to not have to do it. And, yeah. and appreciate the gist of it. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to stick to the poetry that I don't have to spend quite so much time understanding. Yeah, yeah. 
I'm going to skip over the 15th century because it was kind of a dry era before the Elizabethan era in the 16th century. Um, but notable authors are Dunbar and Ashby. Um, you know, go ahead and look them up. I'm not going to do that for you, though. They they do not call out to me at this moment. Yeah. <laughs> um, 16th century um, brings the most famous poet that we all know of, Shakespeare. I mean, maybe not famous poet, but famous playwright, at least. Famous name. I don't know. Yeah. Well, and um, everybody has heard the line, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Mm. And that's one of the first lines to his most famous sonnet, which I had to study that in my English class this last semester. Yeah. And it's it's so funny having a professor. I had an adjunct professor from BYU, Uh and it was so heteronormative. Mm -hmm. And... I'm just going to touch on this really briefly. Yes. There are a lot of people who suspect that if Shakespeare was even one dude. Right. He was bisexual. Right. And there are a lot of scholars that have suggested that that particular sonnet was actually written about a young man that he knew at the time. Ah. And so it was just so funny because I'm sitting in this class and I'm like, this is so heteronormative. Uh Everybody's like, oh, she just seems like this. He keeps on saying these things about her. And I'm like, oh, man, like, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to say anything. But, you know, that kind of (sighs) happened with Walt Whitman, too. Because I studied that at BYU and everyone was talking about everyone was talking ab- about him as if he was talking about a woman in Leaves of Grass. And I'm pretty sure it was verifiably checkable. Well, verif- I'm pretty sure he was gay. I'm, And it's it, I thought it was clear from his poems, but it might not have been. But yeah, it's interesting that. That's that's the the assumption that's made. But yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure. Yeah, if Shakespeare was one person that he was bisexual and that it would have been about a man. Yeah. Anyway, just a little bit of a digression Mm -hmm. there. But that's really honestly the most interesting thing I feel like I can say about Shakespeare because Mm -hmm. I really care more about his plays than I do his poems. And we yeah, we don't agree on that. I, I to be fair, I do need to give his plays more time because it was old Carmen, but I do. I think I prefer his sonnets. I don't even like his sonnets that much, but I prefer his sonnets over his plays. Yeah, I just, so I have like this complete works of Shakespeare book, again, something that I got for free and I looked at it and I was like, yeah, that'll look good on my shelf. Yeah, yep, yep. <laughs> I can probably open up to the sonnets and just like randomly open it up and be like, oh, a love sonnet. Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. we're going to do this for the 114th Yeah, time. yeah, exactly. Cool, 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 cool. Cool, cool, cool. So <laughs> sonnets are, like, like I said, there were a lot of terms and forms and types of poetry that I wanted to like talk about, but I didn't want to get it all at once. But sonnet is one of those. So sonnets do have a fixed, well, they're supposed to have a fixed form, but it's in- so Petrarchan sonnets are a little different than Shakespearean sonnets. Shakespeare kind of changed the form a little bit, and I won't I won't talk about exactly what that form is, but Shakespeare kind of tweaked it a little bit. But most sonnets have this um, this literary device called volta, which means to turn, and it kind of encompasses the idea of turning it around near the end, kind of surprising the reader and introducing a but at the end that kind of you know turns it another way that you didn't expect it to go. 
Um, so the structure of sonnets has been challenged a lot. And apparently now it doesn't even have to follow traditional form or even close to traditional form. And I, I want to argue that that is silly. Why call it a sonnet at that point? Why not just call it your poem? Because what, like, what is, I, I am all about challenging form, but I wouldn't call my poetry any form that I might have been inspired by if it didn't follow that form, you know? Like, mm-hmm. why would it, why would you call it a sonnet if it is not even close to, to what a sonnet is supposed to be, you know? Right. But I do support experiment and stuff like that. I just think that if you're going to experiment, why stick to a traditional, like, why stick to a traditional name that people are going to associate traditional, you know, things to? I don't right. know. That might be kind of pointless, but it just kind of confuses me. Um, and then Shakespeare also has an important example of dramatic poetry, which is meant to be recited. Most of his sonnets are meant to be spoken out loud, L- just like plays. Plays are supposed to, you know, every time we studied plays in in high school or in college, we picked parts and, you know, we we talked, we spoke them out loud because that's just how it's supposed to be. That's probably, how, how you're supposed to hear it. So that's what his dramatic poetry is. It's supposed to be recited kind of like epic poems are supposed to be recited because they were rooted in oral tradition. Um, after Shakespeare, we have Spencer, who wrote The Fairy Queen. That's an example of pastoralism, which is a type of poem that romanticizes rural subjects. I don't want to talk about Fairy Queen. It is so incredibly boring. It's an epic allegory about the Tudor dynasty, but ugh. Um, it's very important, though. <laughs> and I'll eventually get back to it in my life. With the resurgence of Vaishnavism, I think that I'm pronouncing that correctly, which is a devotional form of Hinduism, came a lot of poems about um, Sri Krishna, which is believed to be the is it the reincarnation of vishnu i don't know if reincarnation is the correct word or is a form of vishnu um and we have mirabai who is an indian poet who has written a lot of poems about her beloved sri krishna and i want to i just want to include this because we are focusing a lot on english and american poetry and i i don't know um i don't know a lot of foreign poet well foreign to me poetry just because I haven't taken the time to study it, but I do want to just highlight the important ones. Um, and then we have Dunn, who was an important metaphysical poet. I uh, need to give him more time. I actually really like Dunn. Really? As far yeah, as far as pre-19th century poets go, he is one of the few that I can stand. Oh, yeah. And a lot of it is because of the metaphysical aspect uh-huh. of his poems. So metaphysical poets are a group of... Okay, this is Poetry Foundation, which I cited at the beginning. A group of 17th century poets whose works are marked by philosophical exploration, colloquial diction, ingenious conceits, irony, and metrically flexible lines. Topics of interest include love, religion, and morality, which the metaphysical poets considered through unusual comparisons frequently employing unexpected similes and metaphors in displays of wit. Yeah, and so it's, <laughs> I don't know. For me, it's that it's gone so far to the I can't understand it side <laughs> that it just kind of like circles back around. Oh, yeah. And I'm able to just kind of let go and like enjoy let the words yeah. soak in rather than try to comprehend them. Absolutely. Which is, I think, part of my problem with older poetry is that a lot of it is just kind of supposed to, you're allowed to... You're supposed to allow it to sink in rather mm-hmm. than like think too hard about it. And right. I can't do that when I'm like, but what does it mean? Yeah, <laughs> you but know? what does it mean? <laughs> but with John Dunn, I like actually can yeah. do that thing where I'm just like, 
it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but it kind of does. Uh-huh. I don't know how to tell you how that makes sense. But I but like it. makes it. sense to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, metaphysical poetry was an important movement at that time, metaphysical, not just in poetry, but it, it's kind of an artistic movement. Most forms of art kind of within a few decades follow the same pattern of, you know, styles, stylistic stuff. Um, so 17th century, I've already talked about John Milton, which is the really big one there. Uh, we also have Anne Bradstreet, and we do have a lack of female poets before this time. So I wanted to highlight Anne Bradstreet just to point out that there were some. And her life and education gave her a lot of authority to write about things like politics and religion, whereas, you know, before that, a woman probably wouldn't have had the education offered to her to talk about those things the way that she did. So Anne Bradstreet is notable. Also notable is Matsuo Bashu, who is the most famous um, provider of haikus, which are the funnest form of poems, I think. I kind of wanted mm-hmm. us to have a haiku writing like contest, but I don't really want to do that. But I wrote haikus <laughs> in I wrote haikus in church with my friends about all sorts of stuff when we got bored, and they are so much fun. And uh, yeah, we we don't have to talk about haikus much because I don't know much about them, but. They are, they're really beautiful and really short, really easy to digest, you know, um, and a lot of fun to write. I think anyone can do it. And uh, Sokka from uh, Avatar comes to mind. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I think that as far as like introducing kids to poetry goes, haikus are really great if you want to just be like, okay, like if you want to just practice, mm-hmm. like, thinking of the right word but fitting it into a form here's a simple structure 575 mm-hmm. you know go at it and so i i'm sure it's long gone in some sort of dumpster now but i wrote a lot of haikus myself when i was in high school because i thought like well if i'm going to be artistic then i have to write poetry at some point right <laughs> and i will write haikus and i will pack as much imagery as i can into these short poems mm-hmm. they're a lot of fun and because they're short it is kind of challenging you have to you have to follow a very specific meter or what yeah and it's 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 fun give it a shot all it is is one line is 5 next line is 7 last line is 5 that's it <laughs> yeah um, okay, so to break this up a little bit, I've actually devised a little game called All Guess right. That Poem. Yay. Okay, so we're going to start with easy. I have, I, I mean, what I what I think would, I, I think they're pretty easy. So let's start with easy. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. Oh, man. Every high school graduation has somebody... Somebody, this is um, oh no, you this can is do my it. comeuppance for the uh, I, Academy I, Award quiz. Yeah, we all it's... know you know. <laughs> Everyone knows. <laughs> no, I know. I'm having one of those like moments. Where You're I'm fine. Like... No, we actually. So at my graduation, we didn't. Um, we didn't re- read a poem by Robert Frost, but we sang a musical version. I was in the choir and we sang a musical version of one of his other poems. And it was actually really, really beautiful. And I don't particularly like Robert Frost, but I really enjoyed the music to that. So we didn't, we didn't follow that, you know, cliche, but we did, we did recite Robert Frost. <laughs> 
Yeah. And as far as that poem goes, I, I am going to do a little bit of an angry rant here. For some reason, that line is taken by itself. But when you read the poem as a whole and you actually think about it, you realize that he's saying, hey, there's a reason why the road that's like well-worn and taken most often is the one that's taken most often. Mm-hmm. And it's because it is the better way. Yeah. <laughs> and so many people interpret it to be like, Yes, if you take the road less traveled, then You'll you will learn more. Yeah. No, actually, if you take the road less traveled, you're probably going to get lost. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I really appreciated my English teacher for kind of turning that on its yeah, turning it on its head and saying like, "No, the road less traveled is less traveled for a reason." Like, yeah. Yeah, I appreciated that cuz all I'd ever heard before was like you said, you know, take the road less traveled, dare to be different. Or dare to get lost in the woods, I guess. Yeah. Okay, next we have Once Upon a Midnight Dreary, While I Wandered, Weak and Weary. That is Edgar Allan Poe. That's right. The Raven. And it's the Raven where mm-hmm. he, that bird comes in and tries to creep him out. But guess what? Raven, joke's on you. Edgar Allan Poe is already the creep master. Exactly. Like, what are you gonna, how are you going to creep out the creep master? We will talk about <laughs> Edgar Allan Poe in the next episode. Um,. All right. And this one, I'm not going to read the first line. I'm going to read the last line, which you will definitely, or the last few lines, which you'll definitely recognize. I don't know if you'll know exactly who it is, but you'll know where it came from. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. The wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send those the homeless tempest tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Yeah, shoot, you're right. Do you know? I recognize it. Right. And... Do you know where wh- why you recognize it? Um, it's the inscription it's... on the uh, Statue of Liberty. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. And it is by Emma Lazarus. It's called The New Colossus. And it is about the Statue of Liberty. It's a really good one. It's fairly short. Yeah, that's good. That's good to know. Yeah. That is I know, something I, that I did not know before, and I do now. I didn't. I, I What I did to formulate this quiz, I was like, okay, let's look up the most famous lines of poetry. And that came up. I was like, that's not a poem. It's a, but it is. Yeah. It is. Okay, now we're moving up to medium. You ready? I am ready. Do not go into that gentle good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Hmm. This actually might be hard. It's just the line is the first line is recognizable, but I didn't know who the author was. Yeah, I don't know. That's another one of those lines that's like quoted often because it's like it's so poetic. It sounds exactly. It's poetic. It's pretty. <laughs> it's it's pretty, and I think people probably misunderstand it. I I don't know the poem as a whole, so I have to admit, like I, I've got to take a zero point mm-hmm. on this one. But yeah. I like I'm willing to bet that it's probably taken out of context, mm-hmm. and the poem as a whole probably changes the meaning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's Dylan Thomas. Do not go gentle into that good night. Um. Okay. This this you might not get. I. Okay. Twas Brillig and the slithy toves did gear and gimble in the wave, while Mimsy were the barrow groves and the mome rats outgrave. <laughs> oh, I'm insulted that you think that I wouldn't get it. I don't That's know. Lewis I, Carol. Yeah, <laughs> good job. <laughs> I didn't, honestly, I, I wouldn't have been able to get it. I wouldn't have. So I put it in medium. <laughs> good job. Yeah, no, Point it's, Audrey. it's from Alice in Wonderland. Yep. Um, I don't ask me why, but the jabberwocky in particular is one of those poems that i'm just like 
yeah, I know it. Mm-hmm. Who doesn't? It's. And, I mean, you if know, it do- I yeah. find out that a lot of people don't, and I'm just oh, okay. <laughs> no, it really. I yeah. I don't think a lot of people do, but I do now. I'll never not recognize this weird language. <laughs> so weird. It's yeah. So weird. Okay. Um. I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness, starving, hysterical, naked, dragging themselves through the Negro streets at dawn, looking for an angry fix. Hmm. I think this one, this one was really familiar to me just because of the kinds of poems we studied. So I put it in medium because everyone in my school was very familiar with it. Yeah, I don't, it it sounds, uh, given the vocabulary in it, it sounds like it was probably written in the last century. Yes, it is beatnik poetry. It is by Allen Ginsberg Uh, call. It's from Howell. Okay. So yeah, it's one of those hipster poets. Yeah, I never got a chance to study any sort of beatnik poetry or slam poetry Mm -hmm. or anything fairly recent. It's something that I've had to kind of do on my own recently, so... Mm -hmm. (laughs) I, I'm I'm getting there very slowly but surely. Uh, I have not touched on. You said right. howl, howl. Yep, and it's a longer it's a longer work, but that's a yeah. That particular poem is a section from it. Okay. The plan was to drink until the pain over, but what's worse, the pain or the hangover? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no, I'm going to have to take another zero on this one. It's Kanye. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, I, I I meant to ask, uh, Michael's bandmate was here the other day, and all of us are mega Kanye fans, um, but I meant to ask them what their, fami- their favorite stupid Kanye line was, and I forgot to do that, so that's the one I came up with. But there are many stupid <laughs> Kanye poem, you know, whatever and we're going to talk about we're going to talk about rap in the second part of the episode and unfortunately we're not i'm not going to talk about kanye i you can probably talk about kanye but i have another i have another one in mind (laughs) yeah and it is i think since we're not going to really talk about kanye because i'm in a bad place with kanye right now yeah that's fair but it is worth noting that if you go and look at like lyrics a to z or genius or whatever Mm -hmm. website that has all of the lyrics for his songs he does a really good job of writing in couplets yeah is another poetic device exactly where in the poems you have a thought that is contained within two lines and those two lines rhyme and they don't usually rhyme with any other lines Mm -hmm. and it is extremely bizarre to me to see something that is just like so old almost antiquated at this point yeah and kanye's like nah i'm Mm -hmm. gonna stick with my couplets yep he's good at them (laughs) he really is okay um what happens to a dream deferred does it dry up like a raisin in the sun or fester like a sore and then run Hmm. this is hard this is a short poem actually does it stink like rotten meat or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load. Or does it explode? <laughs> <laughs> so that's Langston Hughes, and it's called oh, Harlem. Okay. I was going to say, it sounds... Recent. Yeah. 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 Alright, the last hard one we have, and I just think this is hard because it's, I mean, I would be able to recognize it, but I wouldn't be able to name it. Uh, little lamb, who made thee? Dost thou know who made thee? 
gave thee life and bid thee feed by the stream and o'er the mead. You know, this is one of those poems that I did study in high school. Hey! But much like Ode to a Grecian Urn, I have shoved out of my mind because I had no fun studying it. Yeah, I don't like this one. <laughs> William Blake? <laughs> it's the lamb. It's the opposite of the tiger. So he has the songs oh. of innocence and experience, and the tiger is in the song of experience, and the lamb is in the song of innocence, and they kind of um, are compared to each other a lot. I see. All right, that's all I have. Good job. All I right. think you got like four. I think I got like a Fifteen percent on that. Hey, so. that's all right. That's you know an average for poetry quizzes for most <laughs> people, including myself. I'm being honest. <laughs> I couldn't even remember Robert Frost's name. <laughs> no, but I knew you knew. I knew you knew. Like yeah. everyone knows. Um, okay. So yeah, if you guys got any of those before, or if you got any ones that Audrey didn't. <laughs> You should let us know. Comment the ones that you definitely got. Um, And also maybe, you know, some more famous poem, like lines of poem that we didn't include. Because that's what I did. I I looked up the most famous poetry lines and tried to write them by easy to hard. Um, Okay. And now we are going to my favorite poetry era. Besides, I think, the current era. <laughs> um the 18th century, the romantic era, and I actually spent a semester studying this. So I'm not a I'm not like a professional I I'm not a genius about it, I will admit, but I am very freshly educated. Um so the romantic era was defined by I mean romanticism, romanticizing aspects of life that maybe is a bit of an exaggeration, but Honestly, it's beautiful poetry, and it's kind of when it started to flourish, I think, into what people consider poetry to be. We have Ode to a Grecian Urn, Ode to Autumn, Ode to, Nightingale, Ode to a Nightingale, all of which are John Keats. Um, and there's actually a pretty interesting movie on Netflix called Bright Star by John Keats, because he, he died when he was like 25, I think, like just way really? before his time. And... It is, it's kind of emotional to watch because he just has so, he struggles so much in the beginning, but starts showing, showing so much potential and then he dies. <laughs> and he, his poems didn't even reach their level of fame until long after he was dead. And so it's really upsetting that he didn't, he wasn't here to see that, you know, high schoolers, every high schooler is studying his poem, you know? Yeah. Um, and an ode is an important form of poetry. Um, so odes are kind of like a song or a praise to something, and they have three important elements. They have what's called a strophe, an antistrophe, and an epode. And the first two kind of look at a subject from one way, and they kind of they kind of clash with each other a little bit. But the epode at the end is supposed to kind of take a higher view and kind of resolve that conflict and wrap up the wrap up the ode. Um, I'm not particularly fond of odes. They are, I don't know. They don't they know. feel a lot like sonnets. Yeah, they're just kind me. of like they're it, they're a little bit boring to me. Yeah, and it's not to say that they aren't beautiful. I think that if you had to make me choose between one or the other, I would choose an ode because, much like what you said earlier, the Romantic era is really where I think poetry belongs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> where. 
you have a form of of conveying emotion that is literally how can I convey as much emotion as possible in as few words mm -hmm. as I can possibly think of. Oh yeah, and that's I mean that's romanticism, right? Mm -hmm. That's linguistic romanticism. Yep, and. Odes are a really great way of doing that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think Keats just completely encapsulated what the Romantic era was supposed to be about. Um, he also um, uses this term called negative capability. And this is this kind of clicked with me when I was in class. When she explained what negative capability was, I was like, oh, like that's poems. Okay, I'll just, I'll explain it. Negative capability is the idea of uh, the idea of what can be gained from a lack of fulfillment or an absence of answers like most people don't like poetry because they're just like what does it mean i don't even know like why should i even bother but negative capability is something that john keats likes to use because he thinks that the ambiguity can be powerful he thinks that the lack of answers and not even like trying really hard to search for those answers can be beneficial um and why, why would that be? You know, why would it be important to not be completely satisfied by or, you know, completely have complete fulfillment from a poem? And it's probably because, you know, you're, that's what real life is. And mm -hmm. it's interesting that it's in the Romantic era, too, which is, you know, trying to embellish things and, you know, make them beautiful and stuff. But, I mean, one of the most beautifully beautiful things to John Keats was the mystery, you know, and finding beauty in the unknowable. And I love that because that's, that's what poems, that's what poems, that's why poems are so frustrating for a lot of people. And for me is the, the, I just have no idea what it's trying to say, but that's okay. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It kind of, <laughs> it's kind of a very oversimplified parallel but it kind of reminds me of like those um, optical illusions where a word is written one way in black, but if you look at the negative space, you see another word. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's not it's not an exact comparison, but as far as like trying to define it goes, I think that's kind of you know a, a good way to start to think about it. Where right. You find meaning in what's not there. Mm -hmm. And it does take an extremely talented person to be able to pull that off. It's kind of like the end of Inception. And I have a huge problem with that movie. <laughs> the main one being just Christopher Nolan. Yeah. I, is my main huge problem with that movie. But a lot of people were very much impacted by the end of that movie because it did leave that ambiguity and it made you think like oh crap well if like he's still in a dream then what has this all meant yeah and if he's not still in a dream then you know what what is how has what just happened affected him yeah and that stupid last shot of that spinning top is so annoying to me with how impressively clever it is oh. i oh. really hate well because it kind of like it kind of begs the question like does it matter you know like right if it mattered don't you think i would have you know resolved it maybe not maybe he just likes to make people frustrated but yeah i oh it's 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 very frustrating <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, and and again, I'm really just mostly frustrated because I really want to find it stupid, but it is still genius. It is genius. And that's that's the part that I hate about it. Yeah, <laughs> like I want to hate it, but I have to acknowledge how good it is. It's so good. It is so it is the perfect ending. I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, I think there is something to be gained from not having all all the answers. I actually experienced that with Kanye's new album. There's a song at the end called Ghost Town, and it doesn't quite reach this crashing, booming, like, epic sound that I want it to. It actually kind of, like, it diminishes with each, with, with each chorus that I think it should be building. And Michael actually brought up the point, like, I think he's doing it on purpose. He wants, he knows that people want it to be this big, like, beautiful symphony of sound, but that's not what life is like, you know, there's going to be a lack of fulfillment. And that was kind of the point. So I'm trying to accept it, but it really bugs me because <laughs> I'd like to blast it, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so moving on, we have Percy B. Shelley, who I have major beef with, and I won't get into that, but he is a butthead. He is married to Mary Shelley, the author of Frankenstein. And that's mostly the beef I have with him is how he just, he's, he's just a, he's just kind of a dog, you know? Yeah. But he is important. He has a beautiful poem called Lines Composed a Few Miles Above Tintern Abbey. And that was my English professor's favorite poem. And I went into it not liking it and came out loving it. So that is that is a notable one. Um, Ozymandias as well, which is a description of a statue, right? So I did kind of throw this on the list last minute because I hadn't really made the connection until I was like actually putting down like very thorough notes and I was like oh Carmen already has Percy B. Shelley on this list mm -hmm. so we're gonna go ahead and we're going to step aside you get a break from our voices for a minute yeah. and we are going to go ahead and have a reading of the poem Ozymandias. Ozymandias by Percy Shelley. I met a traveler from an antique land who said Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them, and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains, round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. So a lot of people are familiar with this poem because of that line uh, near the very end that says, look on my work, see mighty and despair. And it's, you know, again, usually taken out of context, but the poem is about a statue uh, that is in a place that is desolate. Hmm. And... It, it's kind of got that sort of hollow feeling of like, you know, this mattered to somebody, but yeah. what matters anymore 
if it, there's nothing there. It was this. It it was a depiction of this great king, but yeah, no one's looking at it anymore. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Um, so we have William Wordsworth, who I ended up writing a paper about because I confused him and Walt Whitman, and I was kind of confused why we were studying Walt Whitman in the Romantic era, but I didn't think about it because I'm an idiot. So <laughs> I, I studied William Word, William Wordsworth, not huge on him, I'll be honest, but he has written lyrical ballads, another example of pastoralism, which we touched on before with, uh, the Fairy Queen. Um, and then we have Lord Byron, who... I am not familiar. We did not study him. I, my, my English professor was very, very notably against studying him. Just, you know, she probably just doesn't <laughs> like him. Important term comes up from him called the Byronic hero. And a lot of you know who a Byronic hero is. Um, I mean, if you know who Iron Man is, right? Uh, Byronic hero is the rebellious, kind of unlikable, troubled young man. And Moody, you know, kind of doesn't really want to be the hero, but realizes it's kind of his obligation kind of a thing. Alexander Pope, who is a satirical poet, especially with the rape of the lock. Um, satirical poems are often used for political purposes to get across ideas about difficult to grasp concepts and kind of put them in a story that's kind of easy to point at and make fun of but then you realize like oh that's us <laughs> i i understand right. and yeah. and satire is one of those interesting genres that has changed over time mm -hmm. i am a huge fan of satire throughout history so one of the more common authors writers uh referenced at this period of time in the 18th century when we talk about satire is Jonathan Swift. That's right. <laughs> he wrote Gulliver's Travels, which unfortunately I don't think has ever had a really good movie adaptation Ugh. that actually reflects what the novel is supposed to be about. <laughs> it is excellent. Yeah, it's a really, really good one. He also wrote uh, A Modest Proposal, <laughs> which is much shorter. So if you're going to look at satire from that time period, I think A Modest Proposal is actually a really great place oh, yeah. to start. Yeah, you really should. It's pretty horrifying. <laughs> so that is kind of the satire that we're talking about mm -hmm. when we talk about poems like The Rape of the Lock. Yeah. Which, shall we go ahead and do another reading? Yes. The Rape of the Lock by Alexander Pope, Canto One. What dire offense from amorous causes springs? What mighty contests rise from trivial things? I sing this verse to Carol Muse is due. This even Belinda may vouchsafe to view. Slight is the subject, but not so the praise, if she inspire and he approve my lays. Say what strange motive, goddess, could compel a well-bred lord to salt a gentle bell? Oh, say what stranger cause yet unexplored could make a gentle bell reject a lord? In tasks so bold can little men engage, and in soft bosoms dwells such mighty rage. So through white curtains shot a timorous ray, and oped those eyes that must eclipse the day. Now lapdogs give themselves the rousing shake, and sleepless lovers just at twelve awake, Thrice rung the bell, the slipper knocked the ground, and the pressed watch returned a silver sound. Belinda still her downy pillow pressed, her guardian sylph 
prolonged the balmy rest. Twas he had summoned to her silent bed the morning dream that hovered o'er her head, a youth more glittering than a birthnight bow, that even in slumber caused her cheek to glow, seemed to her ear his winning lips to lay, and thus in whispers said, or seemed to say, Fairest of mortals, thou distinguished care of thousand bright inhabitants of air. If e'er one vision touched thy infant thought, of all the nurse and all the priest have taught, of airy elves by moonlight shadows seen, the silver token and the circled green, or virgins visited by angel powers with golden crowns and wreaths of heavenly flowers, hear and believe thy own importance know, nor bound thy narrow views to things below. Some secret truths from learned pride concealed to maids alone and children are revealed. What though no credit doubting wits may give, the fair and innocent shall still believe. Know then unnumbered spirits round thee fly the light militia of the lower sky. These, though unseen, are ever on the wing, hang o'er the box and hover round the ring. Think what an equipage thou hast in air, and view with scorn two pages and a chair. As now your own, our beings were of old, and once enclosed in woman's beauteous mold, thence by a soft transition, we repair from earthly vehicles to these of air. Think not, when woman's transient breath is fled, that all her vanities at once are dead. Succeeding vanities she still regards, and though she plays no more, overlooks the cards. Her joy in gilded chariots when alive, and love of omber after death survive. For when the fair in all their pride expire, to their first elements their souls retire. The sprites of fiery termagants in flame mount up, and take a salamander's name. Soft-yielding minds to water glide away, and sip with nymphs their elemental tea. The graver prude sinks downward to a gnome, in search of mischief still on earth to roam. The light coquettes in sylphs aloft repair, and sport and flutter in the fields of air. No farther yet, whoever fair and chaste rejects mankind, is by some sylph embraced. For spirits, freed from mortal laws with ease, assume what sexes and what shapes they please. What guards the purity of melting maids in courtly balls and midnight masquerades, safe from the treacherous friend, the daring spark, the glance by day, the whisper in the dark, when kind occasion prompts their warm desires, when music softens, and when dancing fires? Tis but their sylph the wise celestials know, though honor is the word with men below. Some nymphs are there, too conscious of their face, for life predestined to the gnome's embrace. These swell their prospects and exalt their pride, when offers are disdained and love denied. Then gay ideas crowd the vacant brain, while peers and dukes and all their sweeping train and garters, stars and coronets appear, and in soft sounds, your grace salutes their ear. Tis these that early taint the female soul, 
Instruct the eyes of young coquettes to roll, teach infant cheeks a bidden blush to know, and little hearts to flutter at a bow. Oft, when the world imagine women stray, the sylphs through mystic mazes guide their way, through all the giddy circle they pursue, and old impertinence expel by new. What tender maid but must a victim fall to one man's treat, but for another's ball? When Florio speaks, what virgin could withstand if gentle Damon did not squeeze her hand? With varying vanities from every part, they shift the moving toy shop of their heart, where wigs with wigs, with sword knots, sword knots strive, bows banish bows, and coaches, coaches drive. This erring mortal's levity may call, O oh, blind to truth, the sylphs contrive it all. Of these am I, who thy protection claim, a watchful sprite, and Ariel is my name. Late as I ranged the crystal wilds of air in the clear mirror of thy ruling star, I saw, alas, some dread event impend, ere to the main this morning sun descend. But heaven reveals not what, or how, or where. Warned by the sylph, O pious maid, beware. This to disclose is all thy guardian can. Beware of all, but most beware of man. He said, when Shock, who thought she slept too long, leaped up and waked his mistress with his tongue. T'was then Belinda, if report say true, thy eyes first opened on a billet due. Wounds, charms, and ardors were no sooner read, but all the vision vanished from thy head. And now, unveiled, the toilet stands displayed, each silver vase in mystic order laid. First, robed in white, the nymph intent adores with head uncovered the cosmetic powers. A heavenly image in the glass appears, to that she bends, to that her eyes she rears. The inferior priestess at her altar's side, trembling, begins the sacred rites of pride. Unnumbered treasures ope at once, and here the various offerings of the world appear. From each she nicely culls with curious toil, and decks the goddess with the glittering spoil. This, this casket India's glowing gems unlocks, and all Arabia breathes from yonder box. The tortoise here and elephant unite, transformed to combs, the speckled and the white. Here files of pins extend their shining rows, puffs, powders, patches, bibles, billet doughs. Now awful beauty puts on all its arms. The fair each moment rises in her charms, repairs her smiles, awakens every grace, and calls forth all the wonders of her face. Sees by degrees a purer blush arise, and keener lightnings quicken in her eyes. The busy sylphs surround their darling care. These set the head, and those divide the hair. Some fold the sleeve, whilst others plate the gown. And Betty's praised for labors not her own. 
Last but not least is William Blake, and I actually had The Lamb included in my little poetry quiz for Audrey, and that is not particularly my favorite from him, but it's just one of the most recognizable. So he has a collection of poems called Songs of Innocence and Experience, and um, like I said, it's a collection of poems that he uses to encapsulate what innocence and experience means, and the transition from innocence to experience, and whether innocence is strictly in children or experiences strictly in adults. And I argue that it's not. I believe that I believe it's less of a black and white kind of thing. And it kind of they melt into each other, you know, from childhood to adulthood. It's never just like, oh, innocence is immediately lost. And you're now in, in, in the version of experience, version of life that is experience. Um it's a lot of fun to read because there is so much to study and the little individual poems are, most of them are short enough to just kind of, you know, they're kind of bite-sized, but as a whole, it's a very, very beautiful work. And there is a, there is a term that he uses called the poetic genius. And this is not in his poetry. This is in his, I don't even know what you would call it, but it's called all religions are one. Um, And it's kind of a set of, principles that he lays out to explain what religion is and it's kind of like a logical philosophical breakdown of what we are and why we worship it's it's really interesting and it's also short it's also bite-sized but the poetic genius is essentially spirit or consciousness like genius being from um the latin root gen which is birth or race or produce so it's kind of like the very base of of what you are um, this is really important to me because the fact that he, he, ma- he calls it the poetic genius makes me believe that he thinks that within us all is the, the potential for poetry and not even the potential to write down poetry, but the potential to be poetic, like to look at things and, and formulate them in a poetic manner. I don't know how else to put it, but it's, it's really, so- <laughs> So you know how in the movie Ratatouille, the lesson learned is that the phrase anyone can cook is yeah. not that everyone can cook, but that everyone has everyone the has the potential. <laughs> it's oh, that that is so Except perfect, for poetry. and that's a great example. When Remy when Remy like eats the cheese and the fruit together, like the strawberry and the piece of cheese, he has that moment where he like closes his eyes and violins start playing. That's like his. That's his poetic genius being just like released. That's that's what it means. Everyone has the potential to see this beauty and to feel it. Everyone has it. And everyone probably has at one point in their life felt it. I mean, when you look out on this beautiful landscape and you feel emotional or when you look into the eyes of someone you love and you feel that like warmth in your heart, that's the poetic genius. And it's it's just the the, the, the potential everyone has to be a poet and to be a poet simply is to express purely you know Mm -hmm. and I just think that's such an important term because and I'm really glad we're ending on it because it really is just kind of what it's it's what every author we've talked about has had in them and whether you like their poetry or not you know it's it, it is poetic genius because it's theirs And it's just, it's so exciting to think about that everyone has that in them because, you know, 
that's where great works come from. That's where great works of art and great music and great poetry come from is from people not being scared to, and you know, I'm, I'm speaking, I'm scared. I, I, I don't recite my poetry for everyone. I don't share it with anyone, but I have so much respect. It's still there. It's still there. It's, it's just the fact that I got it out on paper is enough for me, but to be brave enough to, to share that raw part of your soul, your consciousness is really, really cool. Yeah. So on that note, we are going to leave off with another final reading, uh, William Blake's The Tiger. The Tiger by William Blake. Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night. What immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? In what distant deeps or skies burnt the fire of thine eyes? On what wings dare he aspire? What the hand dare seize the fire? And what shoulder and what art could twist the sinews of thy heart? And when thy heart began to beat, what dread hand and what dread feet? What the hammer, what the chain? In what furnace was thy brain? What the anvil, what dread grasp dare its deadly terrors clasp? And when the stars threw down their spears and watered heaven with their tears, did he smile his work to see? Did he who made the lamb make thee? Tiger, tiger burning bright in the forests of the night, what immortal hand or eye dare frame thy fearful symmetry? Thank you for joining us this week. We're going to be back in two weeks from now. We're going to pick up with the 19th century mm -hmm. and talk about some of our favorite poems, yes. actually. We're really, really excited to get to this yes, part. Yes, this was kind of, I, I talked a lot this episode. This next episode is kind of Audrey's big moment. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see about that. As I mentioned earlier, I really didn't get much into poetry until the last like three years or so. Right. So it'll be we'll, fun. We'll see how much that holds true. But we just want to do our normal end of episode spiel. Uh, first of all, thank you, Sir Georgie, for leaving a review on iTunes. Yes, much appreciated. I <laughs> cannot believe that I did not notice it until recently. Uh, I had seen that you had done a, a shout out for us on Instagram, and I was really appreciative of that. But other listeners, iTunes is where we can actually really get a lot of results and kind of spread uh, the word to other people and actually get on the charts. Mm. So if you review on iTunes, we'll do a little shout out here at the end of the show. Mm -hmm. And as always, you can find us on Twitter at Kittens and Kanye. Or Instagram, Kitten Whiskers and Kanye. And until next time, I'm Audrey Stratton. I'm Carmen Thorley. And this has been Kitten Whiskers and Kanye. Bye. <laughs>